So welcome to this episode of the Vinyl Detroit Podcast. This is episode 25, and I had a very, very special guest today on this episode. Uh, I was joined by David Gedge of The Wedding Present. Uh, Many of you are familiar with The Wedding Present and their work. Uh, David and the gang have been at it for about five decades, which to me is just amazing that they've been able to to do what they do at such a high level for so long. So this is a bit of a long uh, discussion with David, so I'm going to cut the intro fairly short, and let's get to my discussion with David Gedge of The Wedding Present. Gedge uh, from the wedding present joining the Vinyl Detroit podcast. Uh, we're going to speak to a, a plethora of different subjects here today. Uh, a lot of it is 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 available uh, out there if you do your research. But I really, really wanted to hear it from David himself. I think uh, I think that's just so much more interesting and enjoyable. David, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. Absolutely, thanks for being here. I mean, this is just this is a, 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 a thrill for me. Uh, just to be able to speak to you about your your vast career, and as we were speaking prior to flipping on the record, there's there's a lot of material there, as as you said, over 37 years. So hope to just get a good a good glimpse of that today. Uh, for those uh, okay. fans who have been fans of yours for many many years, hopefully this is enjoyable to them. And I, I like to put a, a a little bit of a spin on this because I'm sure there's some out there folks that maybe haven't haven't really ventured down the wedding present path or the cinerama path and um, I'm hoping to give them a good uh, entry point here today so th- this should be a, a good time it should be fun okay fingers crossed <laughs> <laughs> you'll do just fine I'm sure <laughs> so yeah I'm I, again back to kind of my original opening just now and, and speaking about your career um, if you wouldn't mind maybe just spend just a few minutes kind of get <laughs> it's hard to do in a few minutes but uh, just to get kind of myself and, and those listening who maybe aren't as familiar with you, a little bit of background on how the wedding present got started, 
uh, kind of the, the, the early days, the genesis of it, I think that'd be real helpful. Okay. Well, you know, I've always, you know, people always ask me the question, you know, when did I decide uh, that I wanted to be a musician or, you know, being in the band? And I can't, I can't really remember because I've always wanted to do it, you know, <laughs> the age of about five or something. I'm like, you know, there's photographs of me playing records on my mum's, you know, record player and stuff and just like pretending to be a DJ or whatever. And, uh, you know, there was never any time when I felt, okay, this is what I want to do because it, it was just, it was just, you know, no question, you know, there's no question. Of, so I've been very lucky actually that uh, it kind of worked out really because <laughs> I didn't really want to do anything else. I don't think. So I was in various bands when I was at school and at university. Uh, and, uh, I suppose, you know, there was you know, like loads of them really, because that's what you do when you were a kid and sure. you bands with different people. And then after I left university, I suppose I was sort of faced with the decision, okay, either I'm going to do, you know, something with my degree, which is in mathematics, or I'm actually going to, you know, seriously, you know, try and be, you know, in a proper group really. So. Uh, we spent a couple of years uh, doing that, really. You know, finding uh, like a good lineup, and then doing demos, and you know, trying to do a record, uh, you know, trying to get a record deal, which you know, we didn't really get in the end. But uh, <laughs> it was all you know, experience, and it was uh, you know, during that time we were kind of you know, crafting the art really of being being the wedding present, and you know, learning how to write songs, and you know, deciding what our sound was going to be, and. Uh, and so, yeah, and, and basically the culmination of that period was in 1985 when we released our, our first single. And uh, you know, since then, it's it's been been the same. I've done the same thing since then. <laughs> yeah, definitely fortunate to be able to be doing the same thing since the uh, mid-'80s. Yeah, that's what people yeah, people say as well, because uh, you know, I do you know, I do feel for those musicians who are, as driven as me, really, but you know they never you know, quite make make it, and they've had to have alternative careers and things, and you know you sort of feel for them really because they still even now they want to do it, you know, and they right. you know, they try and play music and stuff, and uh, yeah, I've, I've been I've been very fortunate really that uh, I've not you know, had to do anything else. Well, you could have always been a mathematician. To be honest with you, I think I would have hated it. Really. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> It's a weird thing, but I was just really good at maths at school. Um, and when it came to you know choosing a course for university, I think in my mind I was thinking, well, I want to be a musician anyway, so I don't really care what I do. Um, <laughs> it was just that maths was, you know, I used to, you know, how did you only work and I always get A's? And then with the other courses, I'd do loads of work and like just scrape through. So I just thought, well, obviously I've got some kind of talent for mathematics. So, so I went to do that at university and it, I mean, to be honest, it was a lot harder and <laughs> a lot more boring as well. So I did kind of regret it, you know, but I thought, well, I'm here now, I might as well finish it. So, but all the time I was kind of in groups and, you know, just planning for that. I thought I might as well finish the degree just in case it didn't work out. You know, I was quite sensible about that. Oh, but for sure. I'm, for sure. Does it ever work? I'm, at least I've got some kind of degree to fall back on. But, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I wish I'd done something a bit more glamorous now like french or, you know. <laughs> so so for those of you interesting if your kids need any homework uh help from in math uh, but not french uh david's available <laughs> um 
Yeah. So, I mean, like I, I did quite a bit of uh, research, obviously preparing for this and, and, you know, David going back to the early and mid eighties. I mean, there's, there's a lot of history there. And, and I think, you know, he very well summed it up in, in really the genesis of it. I mean, it was something that, that you just, you felt inside, you knew it was there. And, um, again, having played in bands and having been part of, of music really for my adult life, it really isn't a switch. It's more of an evolution and a feeling that you just really never, never get rid of. And, and to your point where there's, there's plenty of musicians out there who maybe haven't seen the longevity or, or this level of success that you had they're they're likely equally as talented, equally as driven, but you know, for whatever reasons, they just, they, they weren't able to, to make that dream come alive. And, and you've been fortunate. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of it is down to look, you know, a lot of it is down to, I mean, you obviously got to be, you know, you've got to you know, have some kind of degree of talent and, you, and you've got to be able to you know, do it really. But at the same time, you know, a lot of it is fashion and a lot of it is, you know, uh, being in the right place at the right time, I think. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, you know, and, and and for those who maybe haven't haven't heard the wedding, what excuse me, haven't heard the wedding present, uh, or maybe are are, are on the surface of, of David's work, uh, he he has a certain voice in terms of not not his physical voice, but his his lyrical voice, his writing voice, and and I I I tend to boil it down. I'm sure it's far more complex than this, but there's a lot of of relationships and love and love lost and for i actually connect with that type of writing how did you find that voice i think it was an uh, sort of before the wedding present really started it was like a year or two and uh, i had a girlfriend at the time and uh she was you know i used to always you know play the songs i'd written the lyrics and she said you know it's good stuff but it's a bit kind of a bit too pretentious or a bit a bit too kind of you know metaphorical and poetic or something and and, and then she reminded me that you know, one of my favorite uh lyricists at that time uh, and probably of all time really was was lou reed in the velvet underground mm-hmm. how he had this conversational style where where you knew exactly what it was all about you know it was <laughs> i mean that was about drug deals and it was about pimps and <laughs> prostitutes and stuff. But, hiding behind any kind of imagery and and you know like a lot of people do that in pop music i think you know it's always like you know what yeah it's a nice tune but what is that person actually talking about i've no idea you know it it, it just feels like phrases which you know works you know for a lot of people but but i just you know once i'd kind of you know decided that i agreed with her i went down that road of you know this very conversational style about uh about relationships like you say you know it's not you know, complicated. Yeah, you know, I think Heather, you're wrong. It's you know, it's it, it's very not complicated. It's uh, I just I've always been fascinated by the way people talk to each other, especially at the beginning of a relationship or the end of a relationship or some kind of crisis or you know, uh, and so I I just kind of write about that. You know, I'm just you know quite observant. I think I absorb stuff and then I just kind of regurgitate, you know, regurgitate it. I suppose in, in the form of a of a pop song. I'm sorry, go ahead. So I was going to say, you know, I've got no uh, uh, delusions. Really. <laughs> yeah, I, I've actually tried to write uh, in other styles, but I've never been as happy with the result. And then I kind of think, well, you know, you listen to Motown or you listen to punk even, you know, and uh, most of the great lyrics are, you know, love songs, really. So uh, it's it's perfect for this format, I think. I, I agree a hundred percent. And, and 
you know, I, I have this, I, this epiphany came to me when speaking to all these different artists throughout, I don't know, the last year and a half or so of doing this. And, and it seems like, you know, a lot of them seem to focus on that, which must obviously be the, the type of style that I'm attracted to. But I, I have such an appreciation for the three and a half minute song. And, and the reason I have that is because I think that's really the only constraint is that, you know, a good pop song generally fits within that time frame. But what makes, I, I believe at least, what makes the really good artists, what makes them different and better and not better, special is what they do with that framework. And, and, I've, and I've always, because I mean, there's, I mean, we know there's, there's the radio heads out there and there's, there's other bands that do eight minute songs and those are, those are good too. But I guess for me, I like I like the one constraint that's there and then what the artist does within that. I, I've always been really fascinated with that. And, and really over the last year and a half, it's really come into focus for me. And I think that's that's you because I, in, in going back and listening to the catalog over and over again, I, I think you're one of the masters at that. I mean, y- you know, you know, when you're going to get a, a wedding present song, you, you know what you're going to get. But it's it's always each track has its own special spark. And that, and that, I guess that's that's the way I take it at least, and and I, I I've really connected to to your songwriting over the years without a doubt. Well, thank you. I mean, I think yes, there is definitely a, like a skill to that, really, because uh, like you say, you know, it's, it's working within a you know, defined set of parameters. And I think you know, for me anyway, it goes back to the you know the classic you know pop singles mm-hmm. that I grew up with in the sixties and seventies. that were seven inch records, and you know, the, you know, they were all like three or four minutes long, weren't they? And uh, I think that is, you know, it's the culture of, of, this, of this. I mean, the wedding present do have some some very long songs. Sure, but uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I, think I suppose that's one reason why I like the seven inch single as well because you are limited. You know, we've done, you know, we did uh, last year. We did this, uh, uh, as you probably know, the series of seven inch singles. Absolutely. A few of those were actually, some of the songs were actually a bit long for the, for the seven inches. <laughs> and uh, we had to fade them out, which was a bit of a shame. Yeah. We didn't, you know, edit them too much, so we, so we just faded them. But, uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's good if you can aim to, you know, get the, you know, something in that, in, the, you know, in that time frame, certainly. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we, we've, I, I've alluded to it a couple of times here already during our chat, and, and I think it's an understatement to say that, uh, your your output since those early days, even really up until the the current the current release coming out or has been released, is nothing short of prolific. Uh, I was listening to the uh, Only Three Lads podcast <laughs> podcast, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and um, I think at, at one point you had just quickly mentioned that you know your catalog was three hundred songs, and uh, you know I I couldn't even take to try and count that, but that <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a lot there. Um, how how does how does this come about in terms of your catalog over such a period of time? I mean, you know, you've, you've been doing this for, I, I think I counted like five decades. I mean, how do you stay so prolific? I mean, even like the, the 24 songs project, that's a very ambitious project if, for those that are, that are listening here to come up with that, that amount of material at that level of quality. Where, where's that coming from? Well, well, I think it's a few things, really. I think, uh, you know, firstly, I'm I'm kind of obsessed with it. <laughs> <laughs> and like we said before, you know, aside from the mathematics degree, there's really nothing else that I can do 
or want to do really so uh i do think about it all the time and i you know, do i don't want to repeat myself either so you know i always want to move on and you know try stuff and i find that quite exciting you know i think it you know again you know you know for some bands it works that they make the same record you know over and over again you know with, with slight variations but that's not for me really I, I find it exciting to you know go somewhere else and you know try different ways of writing and different uh, arrangements and things but uh, but also i've got to you know i've got to say that it's it, you know it's not just me i think you know we've had the, like a series of lineups mm-hmm. over the years and i was the only uh, remaining founder member in i think it was about about 1993 or something you know so it's a long time ago mm-hmm. uh and it would have been nice to have the, you know, the same people in the, in the band like you two or something. You know, there's the same four lads who started the group, and here they are today, all those years. But it wasn't going to happen, which was, you know, a bit of a shame. But at the same time, I've worked with you know, loads of people over those years of of you know, various you know, backgrounds, inspirations, and 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 skill sets. You know, to be honest with you, and uh, and 24 songs last year was no different you know we it was my first time uh, writing with a couple of new band members they've been in the band now since 2019 but uh you know uh, this was the kind of the main writing that we've done and and it, yeah yeah i think it's taken us to a different level again really so it's uh i can't take all the credit is what i'm saying you know I think sure sure often i'm you know, I'm, I'm like a i'm like a sounding board for the people as well so uh yeah, I think it's been partly that, you know, that's the way that you know, the other groups evolved. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, I can, I totally agree with that. You know, there's, there's a, there's, it's, I would say it's fairly rare to have, you know, a, a, a act or a band or, or whatever uh, to have that same lineup over, I mean, just that length of time. It just, it, it needs change, interest change, just, things wane so it i mean the u2s of the world and, and i can think of a few others that's that's such an exception i mean for the mm-hmm. most most of the time i mean there's just there's this this slow rotation of of talent that comes through and and you grow from it and you you sometimes realize what you didn't have and then sometimes you realize what you really had and and i think that's you know as long as you can manage that that's that's exciting and that's growth and that's probably part of what keeps you interested when the day is done so I completely understand that. Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, managing it is it, it is the problem sometimes. Because it's you know, when somebody leaves the band, it's it's always tricky because yeah, you know, you work with them you know, very intimately. You know, you're in the studio, you're on you're on tour, you're in the, uh, the rehearsal room. You know, it's kind of twenty four seven really. So you do have a relationship, and when you know when they leave, it's it's always sad really. But and then you got to find somebody else and <laughs> in musically, and they've got to fit in, you know, into the into the community aspect of the of the, of the, the band and all that kind of stuff. And it's a, it's a nightmare. But it's, like you say, at the same time, you know, that, that person might come in and take us to somewhere else, really, which which I really enjoy. Yeah, yeah, no, I I completely can relate to that. So you know, again, in preparing for this, uh, and and I and I knew this already, but it, it really hit home. Uh, your your relationship and and your uh, hmm. I guess I'll just stick with your your relationship with John Peel and 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 that that tends to to be a a a, a common theme throughout a lot of uh, my chats with artists is it's either their relationship with him 
their uh, their admiration of him and what he's done for this community. And, and I think I'll just tell those listening, if you really want to know more about uh, John Peel's uh, interest and, and frankly, his support of David and the wedding present, you can find all that online. Um, it's 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 very it's very impressive. I mean, he's he was the man, at least from from this side of the pond, which was very hard to, to really see at that time. But looking back on it, I mean, he was the one who was the champion of of many of the acts that at least I like um, and that I adore. I guess I'd like to know a little bit about um, your relationship with John and, and what that support that he provided to you uh, means. I mean, and what it's meant to you over over your career. Well, I mean, uh, fundamental, really. <laughs> it's, I mean, most of the, the bands of my generation, because it, obviously it's different times then. Like nowadays, there's all social media and there's all, you know, in lots of different outlets for, for, uh, for, for, uh, bands but uh in those days it was basically you know radio because tv was in, you know relatively impossible to to get access to so it's radio or all the music papers and uh and so he you know he he was the only dj who would play you know, what's kind of loosely described as alternative music mm-hmm. uh and he was on BBC Radio One, which is you know the main BBC. You know, it's kind of amazing that he got away with it for so long, really. But uh, because it was a <laughs> show, you know, it was outside of the you know the remit of the of the daytime kind of pop schedules. He was he could play whatever he wanted, and uh, so I I discovered that program when I was a teenager, probably about the time uh, that punk came out in you know 1976, 1977. I had school friends that said, you know, have you heard this program on you know late night radio one it's uh john peel and he's playing all these like the, you know the ramones and stuff like this and, uh, and I, I kind of you know once i'd heard it i felt like this is my place this is, this is my <laughs> and from, from that from that day on until until he died really i was you know, a massive fan of that program i used to tape the programs if i, if I wasn't going to be at home and he really did shape you know if i'm honest how the wedding present sounded because i because he was like that kind of arbiter of taste, so he would select, you know, records to play on his program, and I just shared that taste. I think, you know, with you know, with a few exceptions, by and large, you know, if, if John Peel played it, it, you know, I thought it was going to be a good record usually. Mm-hmm. So, so obviously, you know, as I say, he was the you know, champion of 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 for new bands, and it, you know, in, in some ways, it wasn't. It wasn't a great situation because he had kind of too much power in a way. Mm-hmm. I always think, you know, I've, always, you know, I've said this before. I always felt like he was like the emperor in in, in the Colosseum, and uh, you know that you know, the gladiators were fighting the slaves, and 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 it was all down to him. You know, his thumb, <laughs> if his thumb went up, you know, you lived, and if your <laughs> thumb went down, you died. And and it was like that, you know. You know, for some, you know, I, I've got friends in bands who, you know, from the same background, and you know. You'd think, well, Peel would like this, and and they'd say to me, you know, why does John Peel never play our records? And I'd say, I have no idea, but obviously <laughs> he doesn't. And because of that, you know, they really struggled. Whereas for us, I mean, you know, I was a big fan of the program, so he was aware of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in those demo tapes we made that I told you about uh, prior to the first single, I used to send them down to to, to you know, from to, to to here and. You know, with the uh, with the idea of getting like because he used to do peel sessions as you probably know mm-hmm. recorded exclusively for, for that program 
Uh, and so you know, finally the, you know, the first single came out and he played it and he played it 10 times. And and it, the whole world changed for us <laughs> because, you know, before that it was me trying to get a, a gig at the local pub, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, suddenly people writing to us you know, from all over the country saying, oh, come and play at my indie night in, in you know, Scotland or whatever and I'll, I'll be in my fanzine, I'll do this, I'll do that. So it was... Uh, and it was all down to that, you know, the next minute, you know, the enemy were interviewing us and, uh, as I say, fans and stuff, and it you know, never really, you know, stopped, uh, you know, from that point. So, you know, for us, we got the thumbs up, I suppose. And uh, <laughs> Good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Why do yeah. you think? Why do you think he was such a supporter of you? And 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 you know, I would I would obviously ask him if I if I would have ever had the opportunity because I mean. And people can go online and, and do the research and see how much of a supporter John was of of you in the wedding present. Do you, why do you think that was? Well, hopefully it's because we're a good group. But uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure it's part of it. <laughs> I think, I think it, it's good. You know, from my point of view, I think you know because I was such a massive Peel fan. Mm. I think we were almost like destined to be a, a Peel band mm. because I was just listening to all the records he'd played me since you know the mid uh, late seventies, I suppose. And I was just, you know, uh, inspired by all that music. And so it was, I think it was a natural process in a way that uh, when we, you know, uh, started, you know, uh, working on our own songs and records and sound, it it was going to be of that ilk, really. So it was almost like we were, you know, like custom built. Right, <laughs> right, like, for each other, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Huh. Yeah, I mean, that that's, I mean, if, you know, and, and people today, like younger people, they, they, they maybe they definitely don't understand that that power and that uh, that hmm, what what John's support meant to a band. And, and because there's just there's nothing like that now. I mean, there's just there's nobody who's who's got that level of power uh, in, in at least in this industry today that I'm aware of. Uh, no, so, right. yeah. Yeah, so I, mean, I think that's a good thing, possibly, you know, because it's a bit more democratic now, and I think maybe, maybe that you know, that might have been a problem, as I say before. But, that's true. Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, again, I've got David Gedge here from the Wedding Present. Um, we're speaking. Uh, so far, we've been speaking a lot about his career, uh, kind of the, how it started, uh, and and we 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 just really finished up with a little bit of chat about John Peel, who's obviously been instrumental. Uh, in in his career and and really the wedding present as being such a large supporter, uh, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to listen to another track by the wedding present. Um, probably that one of the first tracks that I heard uh, that that I st- still holds a very dear place for me, and uh, that is Brassneck. And uh, we're going to go ahead and give that a listen.
Okay, so we just heard uh, Brass Neck uh, by The Wedding Present. Uh, such a great track. If, if you really want to see something entertaining, David's probably going to chuckle when I, play, when I say this, but uh, go and watch his performance of Brass Neck on Top of the Pops. You can see it on... Uh, on YouTube, and there's a there's a story behind it that that I heard on on another podcast. Again, if you want to know more about it, please reach out to me. I can direct you to the right place. But uh, that was really my one of my entry points to the wedding present. And again, we have David here, uh, and we're speaking about all things wedding present today. Uh, one thing I mentioned to you, David, before we got started was that uh, I did put out to some of my musician friends and some of the folks that I really respect uh, their interest in in music. Uh, just, hey, is there anything you'd like to know from David about the wedding present or anything about his career? And um, I had some really, really good questions come up and some of them, uh, and, and I was, I'm very open with these folks. And I said, hey, you, you can find that out online. Here's the link to it and, and such, such no, excuse me, and stuff like that. But um, one question I thought was really good was from Glenn Donaldson of the Reds, Pinks and Purples. And um, Glenn's been a, a, a very, very supportive person of, of this podcast um, came on at a time when I think I had like one or two episodes and I just reached out and he said sure and he's been really 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 supportive and I really appreciate that and I've been very supportive of his music because I think it's excellent but he's another one similar to you where he's very prolific I, there's just I would I, it seems like I wake up once a week and there's a new track on Bandcamp or there's a new EP coming out he's very prolific I was I was scrolling on my phone uh, preparing for this this morning and I see he's got another side project so very, very similar to you, um, but he had a really good question, and, and I, I figured I, I would like to post that to you and, and get your take on it. Um, he asked how you stumbled on that classic wedding present strumming and, and, and that speedy uh, double-time sound that, that really defined the early, the early days of the band. Where, where did that come from? I think it was, uh, you know... The, uh, Again, going back to the Velvet Underground as well, I always was a big fan of their kind of, you know, their rhythmic, uh, chordy style. You know, it wasn't so much kind of guitar sounds, it was just kind of these two guitars kind of doing this kind of thrashy, uh, long outros. But it wasn't anywhere like the kind of tempo that, that we used. Uh, but I think when the, you know, the band finally settled on its, on its, you know, first lineup, uh, the lineup that eventually made the single in 1985, uh it, it just kind of evolved i think it was you know partly i always say this because because i think there's an element of the truth even though it was years ago and i've, I've probably forgotten the story but <laughs> i think uh a drummer at the time he wasn't really a drummer he was a bass player oh and he but he, he decided to uh join the band because he he was interested in doing it and, and we liked him and we just said well you know just learn the drums and it'll be fine but i think apparently you know, for for a drummer who who's uh, who's starting out, it's very easy to speed up, and so he'd be speeding the songs up, and we'd actually say, actually, we quite like it. Yeah, <laughs> let's let's you know, let's keep going, and I think it's got faster and faster, and I think it almost you know you know we didn't really plan it in a way. It was just it 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 just felt more exciting and more intense and more punky and more you know, and then suddenly we had this unique sound which i thought you know that's probably a good thing to have really, because it sets you aside from you know, from other bands uh and yeah so we did so then once we hit on that kind of idea you know we took it to its logical conclusion and it you know we played everything really really you know <laughs> for the first 
I guess the first like 50 songs or something, like most of them are 100 miles an hour, you know. Like, blah, 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 blah. They're fast. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, quite difficult to play live actually because, <clears throat> you know, you know, the, uh, it's, it's different now because, you know, not the whole set is you know, full of those. Right. But in those days, certainly it was, uh, it took a lot of you know, energy really because. Yeah, for everybody, including, including the drummer, the poor drummer, who, <laughs> whose idea it was, kind of was really. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I think we just found it exciting, and and we thought, okay, well, this is the sound of the wedding present. So, so let's let's go with it. I was, you know, I was listening to that Only Three Lads podcast, which again, if anybody has interest in the wedding present, you're a fan, or if if this podcast conversation with David interests you, go back and listen to that. Um, I think that's the one where you told the story about there being, I don't know if it was an orthopedic surgeon or somebody in the audience who pulled you off to the side and said, how you play is exactly how we tell our, our patients not to act, or not to, yeah. not to use their wrists. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was funny. And, and he was amazed, actually, because he said, uh, you know, have you, any suffered, have you suffered any problems with it? I said, no, not really. In fact, I think I found it easier over the years. I think I've developed... You know the muscles <laughs> in, that, oh boy. in that arm, really. So, uh, you know, people say as you get older, it must you know, it must get harder. And I think no, on, on the contrary, I think it's actually uh, quite easier now to, to, to do it. So, uh, yeah, but it's not it's not advisable. <laughs> it's, it's repetitive strain injury uh, territory, I think. Yeah. So, so for you kids out there, you know, don't don't do as David did. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I. You, you obviously the wedding present and you contributed uh, the track this boy can wait to uh, the C86 cassette which you know again to a lot of those who listen to this podcast um, really throughout the world um, that that was a watershed moment for a lot of them and us and to just be included on that um, very very historically significant in terms of of this scene this type of music and, and you know if you're not familiar with it you can just type in C86 on Google and you'll get more information than you ever hoped for. Um, but what I'd like to hear in your words, though, is what what the historical significance and importance of being on that cassette, that compilation meant to you and, and the band and, and kind of where you wanted to go? Well, we were obviously all fans of the enemy. You know, we used to, you know, as well as listening to Peel with the cassette, we used to all buy the music papers religiously so we'd, we'd get the enemy, the melody maker, and the sounds, really, it was, it was the three kind of, Inkies at that time, but but the enemy was always our favourite paper, and uh, and they did a cassette a few years ago attached to the front. I think it was C eighty one or C eighty three or something, which we liked, and then they decided to do it again in in nineteen eighty six, and uh, it, it was just around the time of our third single, so. You know, we had a couple of features in the enemy and you know, they'd reviewed us and stuff and uh so you know we were known to them but it didn't feel like that at the time that, that it was going to be this big you know this uh -huh. big thing it just felt like okay it's another cassette on you know obviously a lot of magazines that you know, used to give away music you know, either as cassettes or, or cds later on and we just like yeah let's let's you know, give them a track so we we're very flattered to be to be asked, and we said, "Okay, here's a, here's a, this song. This boy can wait." And then, yeah, like you say, retrospectively, that became quite a big thing. You know, I think it was quite indicative of the time because around that time, in the mid eighties, that you know, there were a lot of 
kind of new feisty kind of young guitar bands and the little clubs were swinging up and little record labels were putting the, the band's music out and there was like as i said before like a massive fanzine culture and so it did feel like there was something going on and i think maybe the enemy was you know, clever enough to spot that uh and just compile it onto onto a, you know like a cassette album really uh and then it went on to be very influential i mean obviously helped us because you know, the enemy's a big newspaper it was known around the world and uh i'm sure we you know we acquired more listeners you know, you know to our own music through it as, as did a lot of the bands on there uh but then it you know it does become a bit of a you know weight around your neck because you don't want to be defined as a, a ct6 band sure. you know, forever because it's uh it sounds a bit one-dimensional so i think it you know, very soon after it came out, you know, there's a little scene, everyone's excited. And then, you know, bands were saying, well, we're not really a scene. <laughs> it's on the cassette, but, you know, we, we've really got our own thing going on and it's nothing like that. Because uh, it did kind of go on to kind of define this kind of music, which yes. oddly wasn't totally the same as the cassette, I don't think. You know, there's this like jangly guitar, you know, twee pop stuff, which, is, you know, there's a few tracks on, on the cassette like that, but you know, there's loads of bands who, who who sound a lot harder than that, and you know, there's bands like Bog Shed and stuff, which were, you know, quite uh, kind of noisy, kind of punky bands, really. So, uh, uh, yeah, but uh, it evolved into this into this big scene, and like, and like you say, people still talk about it and now. People write books about it and stuff. So, yeah, obviously, for sure. it was a big it was a big uh, cultural event, wasn't it? Yeah, and and it's it's funny you say that because you know it, it's I mean it's similar to any sort of label that gets put on a, you know a a time or a a sound. I mean I I'm thinking shoegaze right now. I'm th- I mean there's just grunge. I mean I I can think of all kinds of different labels, and and with the C eighty six, you know I would I would sometimes to your point I would challenge those that that try to apply that label and just say have have you actually heard it. So, you know, I mean, it, it yeah, I, I think I think curse uh, just from a distance, uh, it's easy to apply that. But to your point, there were there were quite a few different sounds on there. And, and I mean, obviously, some of those have gone on similar to yourself. I mean, Primal Scream um, have gone on and, and really been very, very prolific where others like, I don't know. I mean, the shop assistants, which I mean, had a very, very short recording career, but in my eyes were, were very influential, but all very different. And that's yeah. that's the that's the thing that I think those that that just try to apply that label, but really maybe frankly haven't even heard the the, the tracks. Well, yeah. I mean, the weird thing is, it's quite an odd scene because most scenes do have some kind of unifying uh, sound, don't they? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it's the sound of, of you know gothic music or like you say shoegazy or whatever. But uh, yeah, it's very varied. It's complete, you know, there's you know there's a few similar you know, sounding bands, but in general. It's, it's not really you wouldn't say that uh, there's a unifying kind of vibe if you like to that that cassette at all i don't think so uh yeah i, th- I think it was more just a little mini revolution because there was a lot of stuff going on really it was more like a you know absolutely kind of activity yeah no no, no doubt i you know i i've I, I i enjoy the c86 compilation still i mean i i because i think i understand it's cultural significance to the, the music that I really enjoy, but you know, I just, I just have a tough time with labels, I suppose. And that, that's, that's maybe when, when I see it getting thrown around, I, 
I would love to, you know, call people out to some degree, you know, the, the American in me, you know, saying, really, have you heard that? <laughs> so, mm. um, but yeah, no, it, well, it, it's it, very yeah. Easy. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the problem with labels, isn't it? That it's very easy. You know, it's very easy to uh, to use, isn't it? <laughs> when you hear music, Absolutely. you say, "Okay, that fits into that category." And then, you know, it, it's you know, a lot of journalists you know do it, don't they? Really, I think it's 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 just a way of of tying things together and describing music, I suppose, because it, yeah, it's quite difficult to describe music, obviously. Yes. Uh, yeah. But so, yeah. So well, I, I take your point. Yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. It was it was obviously a very important, you know, a very important moment in in the wedding present um, arc. So, you know, I, I felt like I wanted to get your take on it. Uh, you know, another another important moment as I was kind of going back and studying, um, you know, the, the the release history and and really the evolution of your sound was when you uh, became partnered or when you decided or however that relationship came about to work with Steve Albini, and. You know, I'll, many of you have heard the name Steve Albini. I mean, he's a a pretty legendary, and I won't use the term producer because I am familiar with that. He's a very legendary engineer uh, in the recording space. I mean, he's worked with the Breeders. He's worked with PJ Harvey. Uh, I mean, Nirvana, uh, Jimmy Page, and The Wedding Present. And if, if you go online and you look at his uh, his discography and the recordings he was involved with, which I don't even think is complete, it is massive. Um, but this question was actually given to me by a, a dear friend of mine, um, Kevin, who um, he's he's a huge wedding present fan. And um, one of the questions that he had that he wanted to know is really how that came about. I mean, how did you how did you get connected with Steve? And then what was that experience like working with him? Well, uh, we basically our first album was called George Best and the second one was called Bizarro. And uh, after those two records were released, I suppose we were in, you know, because they both had the same producer, uh, Chris mm-hmm. Allison. And I think we felt like it's probably time for a bit of a reevaluation. And you know, I think those records are okay. But, but that, you know, none, but I, I personally didn't really think that they captured the sound of the band that I heard at concerts and, you know, in rehearsal rooms and stuff. I just felt that you know they were a bit you know they were kind of okay, but you know I was kind of yearning for something a bit more three dimensional. And then we came across, oh, I came across Surfer Rosa by the Pixies mm. actually, and I thought uh, obviously great band, great songs, but there's something about this record which really appeals to me in the sound. That on the one hand it was kind of natural to hear a band and you know natural sounding instruments, and on the other hand. A bit kind of unnatural. It's something kind of you know otherworldly in a way, and I thought that was a remarkable record. And then I went on to you know see the bands he was in at the at the time and stuff, and I thought yeah these are great bands. And then you know we heard that he was a, a recording engineer as well, and we signed to we signed to RCA in between those two first uh, records, and we just uh, mentioned it to our A and R person there that, that we. I'd like to work with Steve Albini, and they, you know, to their credit, said, "Yeah, sounds like a good idea." Because uh, he was an unknown quantity at that point, really, to be honest, especially in in the world of major record labels. So uh, we met him. I think he came to a concert in Manchester, and uh, and we did an EP with him, which was actually you played Brassneck earlier on. We did a Brassneck on Bizarro, it was the first track, and then 
when we came to release as a single, we decided to re-record it with Albini, and we did it as like a four-track EP. As a way of kind of testing out the relationship with him, I suppose. And uh, we loved it. We thought it was a great, great sounding record. And and yeah, I think it had that extra, I don't know what it was. It was just, you know, his way of recording, you know, suited the wedding present. And to be honest, it's the way we've recorded ever since, really. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. Uh, you know, when he's not been there. And so we decided to do the next third album with him, which was uh, Sea Monsters. So... So we did that over in uh, in Minneapolis, actually. I think you hit the nail on the head um, when it comes to the sound. And, you know, I've been listening to Sea Monsters quite a bit over the last week. And, um, you know, obviously knowing the connection with, you know, Pixies, Surfer Rosa, even even the Breeders Pod, I mean, has that similar sound where it's, it's almost so simple that it's complex. In other words, you know, just it, it has this feel of, and for those who haven't recorded, this isn't how it's normally done, but almost has this feel of, you know, just putting a microphone in the room and just hitting record and playing. And yeah. and that captures really, at least from a musician's standpoint, it captures in many cases, quote unquote, their sound. And this is this is how we sound when the microphones aren't on. And and surprisingly, um, that that it, it sounds easier than it is. And and, you know, when you get into a studio and David, you know, this far better than I ever would but um, you work with a producer work with an engineer obviously they've got kind of a two a twofold mission I mean one of them is to capture your sound but also to you know in their eyes enhance it make it better and and I I feel like with with Steve's recordings I'm sure there's an element of that but it feels like he's really just setting up the environment and letting the band do what they do and and to your point, I think it comes through on the recordings. I think it, it just breathes this this air into the into the recordings, and and you feel like I mean, hate to use a cliche, but you feel like you're in the room in, in many cases. Mm. So absolutely, yeah, that's how I feel about it. Um, yeah, I, and, his, I mean, that's his, his forte, really. You know, it's, yep. uh, because because with Bizarro, the second album, we did go. It was a mistake, really, but you know, we went to that system of you know put the drums down first, then put the bass on it, and then do, you know, so he had all these layers of overdubs. And then with Albini, you know, we said to Albini that, uh, you know, we took, I think it was six weeks to record Bizarro. And he said, he was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> In a weekend. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and we went back to the way we used to do it, you know, when we started, which was, like you say, just setting up in a in a room. I mean, the difference between Albini and the wedding present in 1985 or whatever is that it, his skill is, you know, is, 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 brilliant because he knows exactly where to put microphones you know what kind of microphones to use in which room you know make sure that all the equipment is sounding like it's supposed to sound and then and for a band like us who are essentially like a live band really it's it's almost you know you know just making like a live recording that's that's really well done So, so it's not like a concert where it's, it's more hit and miss and you, sure. you've got less control you're in this controlled environment but, but you're still playing playing live and yeah i mean i think you hit the nail on the head brian when you said it's like being in the room and that's what i heard when i heard sea monsters which i didn't really hear with with the earlier records i felt like i was back in the studio you know yeah uh, I, I i noticed that too you know i when i especially when i listen i mean i have i have it on record and obviously digitally but I, I definitely hear it more, and, and I mean it's digital advantage that 
you know, I can, I can just, I can feel the, the room and, I, and you never know what track that's on or how it's recorded. You just don't know that as a, as a listener, but I mean, when it's digital and, and obviously the resolution's really good and there's just no noise per se, you can definitely get that feeling like you're there. And you know, mm. I appreciate that in a recording. So great segue to our next track. Um, again, we have David Gedge from the wedding present here, uh, joining me today. Uh, this has just been a, a, it's just a great conversation, I'm, in my opinion. I mean, I've really enjoyed hearing your take on, on the different aspects of your career and how you've gotten to where you are today. Um, but yeah, we're going to go ahead and give a listen to uh, a track that was engineered by Steve Albini from Sea Monsters. And um, hopefully you, you, you feel like you're in the room as well with this. And this track is called Dare. There's one more thing come inside.
just heard Dare by the wedding present from the Sea Monsters uh, LP. Uh, just a, a stellar album. I mean, very, very epic. Um, for those that were listening prior to our discussion about Steve Albini's influence on that, um, you definitely can pick it up in, in just the the live feel of it, although it was not a live album. Um, so hopefully if, if you heard that and you like it, go check out Sea Monsters. You will not be disappointed. I mean, I, I try to put five to six tracks during a discussion with somebody. I definitely could have put six tracks from Sea Monsters here and, and, and really still probably not been done. So um, again, David, it's been great speaking with you. Um, hopefully uh, you're enjoying this conversation. <laughs> yes, very much so. Great. Uh, so we're going to kind of switch gears a little bit uh, because I think it's it's part of the the wedding present story, but not necessarily the wedding present. And that was your project Cinerama. And and for me personally, uh, that those albums and that that sound that you were you were making at that time is very important to me. I mean, a day doesn't go by where I'm humming a Cinerama track. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I from doing research here and just looking into kind of how that came about. Um, I really understand you were going for a different sound, uh, you know, obviously different arrangements there. Um, a lot, a lot more um, diverse, at least in that point in the story um, versus the wedding present, which is, I mean, for the most part to that point was 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 standard arrangement, um, you know, guitar, bass, drums. There was other things going on there, but Cinerama definitely takes it to a different level. Um, how did that project come to be? Would you mind sharing? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I think, you know, I just say the wedding present have always been like a guitar band, essentially, you know, guitar, bass and drums. But I've always liked kind of classic pop and I've always liked uh, soundtracks as well, of, of the films, especially people like John Barry, you know, like the Bond themes and stuff, and uh, Ennio Morricone, the spaghetti westerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've, you know, I've always liked, you know, ABBA and the Carpenters as well. So... I think you know with Cinerama, it was just a case of I felt it was, it was I think it was nineteen ninety six or something. It was a really busy year for for, for the wedding present. I think we did three North American tours in that year, <laughs> and uh, so we felt like in ninety seven we would have a little bit of a break, and you know, we'd done that before, but but this time I decided uh, to use that time to explore you know, writing in a different way and. Uh, it coincided with the advent of, of, I suppose, computers being a bit kind of cheaper and uh, uh, there being software where you could you know, sequence things. And I bought a little sampler and I had a little digital recorder. And for the first time, really, since the early 80s, I was kind of writing on my own again. You know, just me on the computer and with a guitar and, and vocals and stuff. And I started going down this little path of... Uh, of like yeah you know using string arrangements using orchestral sounds and trying to create this kind of cinematic sound but but at the same time with with more of a nod to kind of classic pop as well and i just found that i really enjoyed it and i, f- I felt like in some ways it'd be unfair to you know, drag uh, the other members of the wedding present you know down this road with me because obviously it was, it was a bit of a, a change and so i decided to, that I'd, I'd do it on my own as like a little solo project and uh and it it just carried on you know i did the first album and i, I really enjoyed it and i want but at the same time i saw some flaws in it that i wanted to address so we did the second i did a second album 
And then I, you know, we formed a little band called Cinerama because uh, it cause we, especially with the first album, it was basically me and a, and a bunch of uh, you know, session musicians, really. Me and my girlfriend, actually, at the time. And then a load of session people. But then we, you know, so we formed a band then. So in the end, we did three albums. Uh, and I, yeah, you know, they, in the same way as the wedding present evolved, they kind of evolved mm-hmm. you know, through, the, you know, through the years, but but with this different kind of hallmark sound of 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 the orchestration and and yeah, more like keyboardy stuff and things like that. And uh, but so one thing I didn't quite notice was was the fact that while I was working on these three albums, each time the guitars were getting more and more prolific. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we did not of him the first one, then Disco Volante, and then uh, Torino. And at Torino, it, it, it was kind of almost becoming like the two bands had merged together, really. It was like people had said, it sounds like the wedding present with strings now, kind of thing. <laughs> and then uh, so we embarked on this fourth album, which was going to be called Take Fountain. And then we did. A session for John Peel, actually, funnily enough, that we were talking about Peel earlier on. And I was going, you know, I was there with just like guitar, bass, and drums, and we were playing tracks of this uh, new album. And, and and the engineer said, you know, you've come here and you're calling it Cinerama, but I've recorded the wedding present in, in previous years. And to me, this is the wedding present. And I kind of like, no, no, it's Cinerama now, it's a new band. And he said, but you know, with Cinerama, there's normally a string quartet over there, and there's normally a flute player and a trumpet player, and you know, you know, where's all that? And uh, I suppose I kind of realised, yeah, maybe you know, I've come full circle here. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, so we decided when we went to record that album, that even though I'd kind of written it you know, with Cinerama in mind, we'd uh, we'd record it and release it as the wedding present. And I think, yeah, that was kind of the end of the little you know, Cinerama arc, if you like, that, that we'd started off on this. Projects and then it, it it kind of brought us back to, you know, the wedding present in a way. And I wanted I wanted to ask you about that when I originally started putting my questions together. It was you know will we ever see another Cinerama album? And it, it's it's just so ironic that you said that. I just I didn't ask it because as I was listening to the the new compilation um, specifically, and and I've heard it otherwise now that I look back on it. But when I was listening to that, I was thinking well. Cinerama and the wedding present have have merged and and those mm. those divergent sounds that were divergent early on have now become the wedding present and um, I hear it a lot on on the new compilation personally I'm, I'm sure there's there's uh, there, there's definitely other points in in recording since Cinerama that it has shown up but it really struck me um, when I was listening to that album again which again I'd like to speak to a little bit here because we've kind of We've kind of spent most of our time talking about history and and kind of how we got here today. What I'd like to speak a little bit about is this new compilation. Um, it's called 24 Songs. Uh, it's a compilation of singles that uh, was recorded, I think, mostly last year. Um, mm-hmm. And and it has been packaged together uh, on Happy Happy Birthday to Me in the North America and on Clue Records uh, overseas. And, and frankly, in my opinion, um, I think it's some of your best work. I, I And I know, you know, compilations are tough, especially when it's, you know, something where it was a project of of a a bunch of singles brought together. But I don't if I didn't know that, I don't I think it's cohesive to the point where it to me, it just it sounds like a really, really grand 
uh, excellent album. And that just that's my personal take on it. I think it's some of your best writing, arranging. I mean, the performances are spot on this one. Um, how how does a person approach such a project like this? And I know you did it back in the early '90s with the hit parade. Um, first off, how do you approach it? And then second is why do you do that to yourself? I know how hard that must have been. <laughs> um, why why did you do this? <laughs> well, yeah, it was kind of like an echo of the, of the hit parade, really. I should say from nineteen ninety two. From nineteen ninety two, and uh, you know, when we did it that time, I suppose we we kind of you know didn't really think about it. You know, we just thought, oh, this would be a cool way to, to rather than doing an album, let's just you know do a single a, a month. And again, RCA were kind enough to, to agree to it. So, so we did it then, and uh, yeah, it's it, it's a bit harder because you're working to a deadline. You know, you, as a songwriter, normally you you know, you're funny around with this bunch of songs until you've got like, like enough for a record, and then you finally say, okay, we've got enough, let's go and record it. But with a series like this, it's a bit more like a magazine or a, a radio show or something. You know, you've got to, you know, you've got deadlines. You've got to have the have the songs you know written <laughs> in time for the for the seven. So I, I think I probably forgot about that. Came <laughs> thirty <laughs> years later and thought, yeah, let's let's do it again. You know, because I was thinking, you know, I'd like to do some kind of thirtieth anniversary tribute to the to the hit parade, and I was, I was thinking of different ways of doing that. You know, which we play it live or something. And then I was like, well, we could just do the same thing again. And uh, I mean. Admittedly, it was a little bit easier this time because, weirdly, because of the pandemic. Because, mm. you know, there was a good chunk of time there where we weren't doing anything because we couldn't, you know, we couldn't, we, we couldn't play live, we, you know, we couldn't even go to rehearsal rooms and things in the studios. So both me and the guitarist John Stewart and the bass player Melanie Howard were all writing at home as well. And you know, again, one difference between now and 1992 is that, that you can do stuff on your computer now and you can send a file to somebody and they can add their bit and then send it back. Then you can add a vocal and send it, you know. And so we had this little file sharing thing going on. So a lot of the, I wouldn't say a lot of them, but, you know, there was a substantial number of songs were kind of finished before, you know, we decided to even embark on the project. project wow. really. So... So when I decided, okay, let's do this while singles again, I think we probably had like a third of them ready to go anyway or something. So, yeah. which again was, you know, we had to do that this time because in 1992 with, you know, vinyl was still a big format there. It was kind of dying, but it was still a big, a big thing. And I remember, you know, we, uh, we, with the hip parade, we'd be in the studio and recording it, mixing it, and it'd be out, you know, a few weeks later. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, there was pressing plants everywhere still, and uh, we had, you know, you know, the might of of RCA's kind of account, I suppose, at some pressing plants, so they so they turned it around really quickly. This time, you know, I think I think that worst it was seven months, you know, lead time between you know being in the studio and the record coming out. So we really had to plan it, and it had to be done in advance. So there wasn't the, you know, the you know quite the. Uh, kind of nail biting you know deadlines that, that we had in, in those days so it was a bit, and also you know we did it all here we did it, it was uh, with it was in, in one studio that we used in brighton uh, where i live now and it was the same engineer so that probably adds to that cohesiveness you know to which you uh, referred earlier 
I think. Yeah, we had one change of drummer halfway through, but apart from that, it was the same musicians in the same studio, the same rehearsal room, the same style of writing together. So, yeah, I think it, I think you're right. It does. I actually kind of resequenced it for, for the compilation because obviously the singles came out chronologically, and it was just the songs we'd finished at that time. You know, we did. I think we did five different recording sessions wow. but then when i i came to the the album i just you know there's no reason why i can't you know change the order so i like you know this one sounds like an obvious side starter and this one sounds like the last track on on the side you know and the last track on the album all that kind of stuff so uh yeah we you know kind of and i was you know conscious of building like a theme through it because People don't realize sometimes, you know, with an album, you've got to think about that. You, know, you can't just, you know, throw tracks on. With, I know it's the age of streaming now and nobody cares anymore, but. <laughs> I care. <laughs> it flows, doesn't it? It's like a set list. You know, see a band, it's, like, it's not just, you know, like randomly chosen. You know, there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. It's got to ebb and flow. It's got to highs and lows and light and shade and all those things, you know, uh, are quite important to the experience, I think, of, 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 of a concert or a, of an album so yeah you know i was you know mindful of that when we were sequencing it certainly yeah you know and and, and for for those that maybe aren't musicians again uh david said it best i mean when it when it comes to live performances or sequencing an album and, and sequencing basically means you know what track goes where um there's a lot of i mean a lot of thought and and many a band have have come to proverbial blows over sequencing <laughs> and um and and so you know he obviously having had the opportunity to go back and, and take those singles you know in the way they were released and then resequence them for a compilation in terms of where they fall uh is, is a it's a it's an important it's an important activity to the artist to be able to show this is how this is how i want you to listen to it and, and like david said i mean streaming has has really taken the the album a little bit out of the equation but in my in my feeling i mean and maybe i'm a little old school still but the the album sequence the the start to finish concept uh is very important to the artist i mean it means a lot again there's there's been there's been countless stories of of i'm thinking of of one i won't say who they are but i mean where i mean they almost broke up over over sequencing an album so it's that important <laughs> oh yeah totally it is yeah i mean you know we've had countless arguments over the years over over it because everyone you know everyone's got their own view of uh you know what's a stronger song what's a weaker song you know all that kind of thing and you know what's an obvious you know do we have a, a big finish or do we have a like a downbeat finish you know it's all you know, it's how many ways to to uh kill a cat or whatever the phrase is you know there's yeah. you know, there's, no, there's no kind of right or wrong answer in a way either it's just it's just no. it's and that and that's and that's where the challenge comes in is that there you know there's there's no right answer it's really a lot of feelings and emotion and a lot of people put a lot of work into those recordings and you know they envision it a certain way and i, I get it it's you know and 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 i think i think it's it's again just to put a bow on this part it's vastly more important than people realize so if given the opportunity of either purchasing an album or having it on streaming whatever however you consume your music just just respect the the artist's um desire to have it to have it listened in that order i mean you know there's a lot of talk and we won't even get into this but i mean as far as remastering and what the artist intended and all that noise 
the the sequencing though is is something from the artist and that's that is definitely their vision of the recording so um great answer david that that definitely helped me a lot i know um we'd like to hear a track from 24 songs at this point i think it's um again it's i think some of your best work uh, along with the band i mean they were very tight on that i mean the recording is very very good um i believe this is the second track uh memento mori if i'm s pronouncing that correctly memento mori yes okay great yeah so we're gonna go ahead and give that track a listen here uh, again that's from the 24 songs compilation that uh has been and is being released currently uh, in the U.S. on Happy Happy Birthday to Me and on Clue Records overseas. Again, Memento Mori. <laughs>
we just heard the track Memento Mori from the 24 songs compilation by The Wedding Present. Uh, again, available on Happy Happy Birthday to me here in the U.S. and on Clue Records overseas. Uh, it's, it's just a fantastic compilation of a project that the band uh, undertook to record uh, a series of singles and then compile it onto one cohesive album and david did a great job at explaining how important it is to put that together to sequence it and such uh we've spoke quite a bit throughout this conversation about frankly the the output and the volume of of what you've done over the years and it, it's quite large it's and you know as somebody who has been a, a a fan and a follower of the wedding present probably since the early 90s when i really discovered uh your work even now, I'm um, going and looking into it. it there, there's a lot there. It's a little intimidating. So, I wanted to ask you if if somebody was a new fan or or somebody who was kind of watching from afar the wedding present, what would be your recommendation for an entry point into what you've done? To be honest with you, you know, uh, I don't think I'd have one. I don't, I don't think I can answer that question. <laughs> I mean, a because of you know the size of the catalog, yeah. but also because uh, you know based on what I was saying before about the and the fact that it, it, it's it's kind of evolved and changed over the years. That I I do gen, you know obviously you know Cinerama was a different group, but but that aside, I do feel like I've been in like half a dozen different groups over the years. <laughs> kind of have you know if you think about the fact that I've had these lineup changes and things, uh, and so. You know, you get. I see these debates sometimes on on Twitter or something. You know about about which is the best wedding present album, and and often, you know, some people's favorite albums will be other people's you know, least favorite albums. Sure. And they're both fans of the group, but it's you know, I'd hate to say to somebody, okay, go and listen to, uh, you know, Watusi for instance, which is the record that we did on Island Records, mm-hmm. which is you know, one of my favorite records actually, but it's certainly not typical of the wedding present. Not and so you'd go in there and hear that and, and you'd think, well, this is what the wedding present sound like. I don't like it, you know? And, and, and so I'm, you know, I'm kind of, you know, scared to say that because it's <laughs> so different from something like sea monsters. And you think, well, you know, I've got to know what, you know, before I answer the question, I've got to know what the person likes. I think <laughs> you, know, yeah. you send me a survey. <laughs> in the direction of the wedding present record that makes most sense to you i think i think <laughs> I'm sorry I'm no i think i think it's a fair answer i mean it, it, it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a tough question and i think that it's funny you say that as your answer because i think that's at least the feeling i get even when i look so you know i love i love the production work of of sea monsters and the song i mean sea monsters is probably would be my recommendation for folks but that's like 1a and for me 1b would definitely be um saturnalia that was kind of like i don't know that's got a soft spot in my heart and then i would probably go to vavavoom by cinerama and i would say those those three yeah, points why I mean, that's three completely different records isn't they it? are <laughs> that's why it's so hard <laughs> um, well, i mean it's weird that sea monsters you know now is kind of revered as, as a wedding present you know one of the iconic yeah. when albums at the time it wasn't you know yeah and I remember, you know because it came after bizarro which was a, a lot more kind of up-tempo jangly you know kind of uh, indie pop i suppose you'd say and then suddenly here was this new sound which was a, a very a much more intense and mm-hmm. kind of layers of guitar noise and stuff 
And uh, you know, half the fans, you know, literally, you know, I think I think when Bizarro came out, it sold sixty thousand straight away. When Seamus came out, it sold thirty thousand straight away. Oh, wow. so half the fans straight away didn't like it, and I think they've they've maybe grown into it now. But you see, I'd be loath to point someone in the direction of Seamus because it is quite. You know, I think it's an album which repays kind of repeated listening. But sometimes, you know, people think the vocals are too quiet on there or it's just a bit too kind of intense, you know. Oh, uh, yeah, it's intense. There, yeah. There's no doubt. And and I think you're exactly right. It, I, I think it does pay off with repeated listens. But what I found is that um, the intensity, <laughs> the more you listen to it, the more intense it gets. Yeah, that's a strange thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's funny. You, you would think that the more you listen to it, the more familiar you get. And and it hasn't been that way for me. It, it, when I pulled it out again this last week, I just, every day I would listen to it in the car on the way to work. And I was like, this is getting a little, little too intense. Like I almost need a, a wedding present break. Actually, Saturnalia is an interesting choice because I, I remember when uh, when we did that record, I felt like it was kind of almost a, a greatest hits of the wedding present sounds so far, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So it had a bit of the kind of the early 100 miles an hour jangle stuff. It had a bit of the Sea Monsters feel to it. had a bit of the Watisi, you know, a bit more of a, a 60s kind of retro sound or something. So so that's probably a good one, actually. I've forgotten about that one. Uh, yeah, I got it. I got into a little debate uh, on my Instagram account. I, I posted a, a photo of Saturnalia and I had said that, you know, I don't know. Someone said, yeah, yeah, that's good. But, but Sea Monsters is my favorite. And I said, I, there's no way I could debate anybody on that. But really, I, I think maybe it's just, it goes back to your point in terms of the listener and a survey on them. But just where I was at that point in my life, Saturnalia was an important album. And, and listening to it now, I mean, it, it just, it's held up just fantastically and and i like that you said that it does really kind of show the different evolutions of the band to that point and maybe that's why why it's meant so much to me i mean you really get a a taste of of all of the work that you had done for the most part um on that one album so it's it's really enjoyable to me it means a lot uh again i've got david gedge here from the wedding present we've been speaking all things wedding present today um quite a bit it's been a just a fantastic conversation and and I and I guess you know we've we've spoken mainly about um, the past, and we've talked about you know just different evolutions of the band and the different side projects, and we've gotten into so many different great subjects. But for my last question, I really wanted to kind of look forward a bit, and you know I know you've got you've got the uh, the festival in Brighton that that is I would just give anything to go to one year. Um, you've got obviously the wedding present still going strong. There's just there's just still prolific. If I'm looking forward into the future, and you know, we're into the fifth decade of the wedding present at this point, what what does the future hold? Absolutely no idea. I mean, I think <laughs> it, I, I, I've never really planned to be honest with you. I always, you know, it's a bit of a, a bit of a stupid answer to give to people, but I always say, I think planning is for kind of architects, really. Yeah. I think you know, for me, one of the beauties of of my job, if you like, is the fact that I don't have to plan because. A things happen, you know. You know, we'll get offered, you know, come and play in Japan, come and do this, come and do that, and often, you know, uh, uh, that will be inspiring, and we'll think, okay, like for instance, you know, uh, uh, there's a festival in Barcelona called, called uh, Primavera Sound. Sure. 
and uh, and they invited Cinerama to play a few years ago, out of the blue. And you know, Cinerama don't really, you know, we play at my festival uh, mm-hmm. in Brighton every year, but apart from that, you know, Cinerama don't really do anything anymore. But because of that, it, it suddenly launches into this, you know, let's do a bit of Cinerama. So so we, you know, we formed a, formed a, a new version of Cinerama for that festival. And then we did some other concerts and we ended up uh, you know, filming the London show, actually. Uh, I think it was 2015. And uh, so all of a sudden, you know, my you know, time was was diverted into this Cinerama project, which became a an album and a you know, live album and a, and a CD and a, a DVD and stuff. So, you know, I think, you know if I'd you know, planned something out before that and then Primavera to come to say, can you can you do Cinerama at this festival? And I said, well, no, because I've got these other you know plans, five year plan or whatever. You know, would have missed out on that. So I sure. always think it, you know it, it's nice to have that freedom and, and to be able to you know do things that, are, that are just come along or you know somebody in the band will say let's do this and we'll go yeah that's not a bad idea like the, the, the twenty four songs you know let's do twelve singles in a year again and uh, you know that's that's one of the beauties of of, of being in a in a pop group really I think. <laughs> weirdly yeah and it and it's a beauty having i mean having achieved so much already you know you, like it, you know on your way up there was maybe presumably more more planning going on and maybe not but um no, not really. <laughs> okay <laughs> but but you know i mean once you, once you get to a point where i mean everybody who's anybody at least you know in 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 music somehow knows of what you've done um then it, it, i think the gear changes to where you know what is what is the next best opportunity as it comes up you know whether it's primavera or it's well, we, new... yeah, you do have to prioritize because obviously you know yeah. when we first started we were just playing in the uk and then we started playing in the continental europe uh, countries and then you know we went to north america for the first time and that and that's really what like, over the years has got bigger and bigger so so now we do you know we've been to australia and new zealand a few times we've done a couple of asian tours and so you're right, yeah. I'm being a bit facetious, really, but obviously, there's a lot more kind of touring involved these days. If if we want to do it, you know, it's there, really. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, we had we had much more space, you know, because we, because we weren't touring basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yeah, that's the only kind of real planning strategy I think there is. You know, oh, we've got this tour coming up. We you know, we have to you know earmark time for that, but. Uh, yeah, in general, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, and you know we do fall into things by accident. Even, you know, you were saying earlier that there's probably more planning, and I, I, I'm not sure there was really. I, you know, <laughs> in 1992, and we had that idea in about the November of 1991, and suddenly it was like, what? Well, you know, can we do it next year? You know, <laughs> it's, it's a bit short notice, and oh, I think it was October actually. I'm exaggerating, but it, but it's that, you know having that freedom to do that was was great really. Yeah, and I guess if you were if you were planning, you you in 1992, you probably would have said we're we're never doing a, a singles uh, series again. <laughs> um, but David, this this conversation has been fantastic, and and I really really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me. Uh, again, it, you know if if you if you haven't heard of it already, go and check out the the current compilation of the singles we spoke about called Twenty Four Songs. I guarantee you, you will not be disappointed in any stretch. Um, you will get a very nice taste of, of, frankly, of where David and and the band and the wedding present are today, which um, I think is just a great place. So, 
Um, again, David, thank you for joining me. This has been just an outstanding opportunity. I hope you hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. A very great pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Absolutely. So to close out this show, um, I wanted to find a spot for this track and and I, I didn't know where because it was very heavy, uh, obviously wedding present focused, but I wanted to get uh, one of my favorite tracks from Cinerama here. So we're going to go ahead and close out the show with uh, a track that means a lot to me. I, again, I probably hum it a couple times a day, just out of the blue. And this is Comedienne by Cinerama from the Vavavoom album. And again, David, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Take care. enjoyed today's episode of the Vile Detroit podcast, where I had the distinct pleasure of speaking to David Gedge of The Wedding Present. David was just such a great guest. I mean, so endearing, uh, so honest. Uh, it was great hearing about all of his experiences and really 
five decades worth of writing and recording music. That's just frankly unheard of. So um, hats off to David. Again, thank you for joining me today. I also wanted to thank Mike from Happy Happy Birthday to Me Records. Uh, Mike, thank you for putting this together. Um, I know you've been a supporter of this show, and uh, I can't tell you how much that means to me. As always, though, you can catch this episode as well as previous episodes on your favorite podcasting platform. That would include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and others. Uh, you can always find me where I'm most active would be on my Instagram account, which is vinyl underscore Detroit, where I'm always posting some of my favorite albums. And um, just it really means a lot to me that that those of you who've been listening have really been so loyal. Um, I've received so many great comments on the show, and um, I'm really, really excited for what it brings. So we're going to close out the show uh, again here today. Uh, after my conversation with David Gedge of The Wedding Present with one of my favorite tracks that uh, the band has done over their career. It's actually from their first long player, uh, George Best, and this track is called My Favorite Dress. And again, thanks for joining me today. It's